It's good to be with you this morning on this Sunday as we continue here in our teaching series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to begin by asking a question, as seems to often be the case when I'm preaching a sermon. And Bill, go ahead and stick the slide up there. Or Jude, there you go. Thank you. The question is this. How far will you go to reconcile a broken relationship? How far will you go to reconcile a broken relationship? Back in 1999, a movie titled The Straight Story came out into the theaters, and maybe some of you saw it. The movie itself is based on the true story of a gentleman by the name of Alvin Strait, It's based on Alvin Strait's 1994 journey that he took across Iowa and Wisconsin on a lawnmower. Here's a quick picture of him on his lawnmower. Maybe this is now ringing a bell to some of you. When Alvin, who's the main character, and this is based on a true story, when Alvin, the main character, hears that His estranged brother Lyle has suffered a stroke. When he receives word that that Lyle is having health difficulties, Alvin makes up his mind to go and visit his older brother and hopefully make amends with his brother before he dies. The problem, however, is that because of age... Alvin's legs and his eyes are too impaired for him to be able to receive a driver's license. And at the same time, he doesn't trust anyone else to drive him. And so he determines that he wants to reconcile with his older brother. And he hitches a trailer, he builds a trailer, and he hitches it to a 30-year-old John Deere lawnmower that has a maximum speed of about five miles per hour, and Alvin sets off on a 240-mile journey from Lawrence, Iowa, to Mount Zion, Wisconsin. The movie, which itself often moves at a slow pace to help you get the feel of the journey, the movie takes you along for Alvin's ride, and allows you to overhear many of the conversations that Alvin had along the way. Conversations that helped to heal not only Alvin's heart, but also the hearts of those he met. Nearing the end of the movie, Alvin has parked this rig, as he referred to it as throughout the movie. Alvin parked his rig in a church cemetery for the night, and he is joined around the fire by the pastor of the church. And at one point in the conversation, the pastor asks Alvin, whatever happened between he and his brother Lyle to cause them to have a disagreement that that broke up their relationship for over 10 years? And answering the pastor's question, In the movie, Alvin responds in this way. He said, the story is as old as the Bible. 
Cain and Abel, anger, vanity, and you mix that together with liquor, and you've got two brothers that haven't spoken in 10 years. Whatever it was that made me and Lyle so mad, it don't matter anymore. I want to make peace. I want to sit with him. I want to look up at the stars like we used to do so long ago. How far will you go to reconcile a broken relationship? This morning we find ourselves here in chapter 5 as Denise did so well reading for us verses 21 through 26. And we're continuing following Jesus and learning the way of the kingdom. Over the last number of months we've learned the importance of repenting and turning from our old ways of living. We've learned how Jesus invites us to follow him and how Jesus will do the work in our lives when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. There in the early verses of chapter 5, we looked at the Beatitudes, the heart attitude of the kingdom. And now Jesus is taking us into some of what often is maybe some of the more life-changing, some of the life applications Of the kingdom. And this morning, our big idea, the main primary point that we hope to to go home with is this is that kingdom living is moving away from anger and toward reconciliation with God and others. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to repent and turn from our old ways of living and, and live in obedience to him? It means that we are leaving anger and we're turning and we're making our way toward reconciliation, not only with God, but with others. Last Sunday, we left off in verse 20, and I, I want us to, to look back at verse 20 as we somewhat segue now into our text this morning. Last Sunday, In verse 20, we read these words, and and look there in your copy of God's word, where Jesus said, he said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus said, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about a greater righteousness that we must have in order to gain entrance into his eternal kingdom. Now, we... We learned last week that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were experts in keeping up an an external appearance. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were experts in following the demands of the law, which presented themselves often as good deeds. But here in his sermon, Jesus is teaching us that a person is judged not only by their external deeds, but Jesus is helping us to see that a person is also judged by the desires of their heart. The world has a way of looking at the external, and the world determines, based upon your good deeds, the world looks at you and just says that a person is good as long as they appear to follow the rules. For the world, righteousness is merely external. Righteousness only goes skin deep. But Jesus is pulling back the veil to help us to see that that even our hearts and our minds, our desires and our thoughts are of great importance. 
The greater righteousness of the kingdom is not measured by simply external deeds, but the greater righteousness of the kingdom is measured by our heart's desires. It's not enough to simply stop short of committing an external sin. Instead, the only thing that it is not enough is, is to not even have the desire to want to sin, Jesus is telling us. And And what we also know in Scripture is that Jesus, as he speaks of this greater righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is that greater righteousness. The righteous requirement for heaven, which Jesus speaks of here in verse 20, is not based on our good deeds. It's not based on our scorecard. It's not based on whether or not we check all the boxes on that list of do's and don'ts. It's not based on our ability to impress other people. The righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law is Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given how? Is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. And so that greater righteousness that Jesus is speaking, we must have only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But it gets even better than this than that because not only does Jesus offer himself to us as the perfect righteousness, but Jesus even goes on and gives us the means in which we can follow him and live in obedience to his commands, his laws. And this this was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament for the prophet Ezekiel. He declared these words. He said, God, through the mouthpiece of the prophet Ezekiel, God said, I will give you a new heart. He said, I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone, your old heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. And so we see how Jesus being that greater righteousness not only changes our internal hearts, he gives us a new heart that changes our desires, but then he gives us the Holy Spirit that helps us to live in obedience to his commands. So when Jesus says, come and follow me, Jesus is calling us to live in obedience to his instructions. And he's calling us to live in obedience to these verses that we're going to study this morning and in the weeks to come. Now, what we discover in the remaining verses of of chapter 5 is that Jesus presents to us six examples or illustrations that help show us how the, the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees is only found through Jesus and faith in him. What Jesus is doing in these remaining verses of chapter 5 is he's surgically opening up our hearts to show us how how deep, right? How, How way back in the deep recesses in the hallways of our hearts, all right, we have the tent, we have sinful desires. Jesus, through these verses and these examples, is going to... He's going to say, okay, like, like he does this morning, he's going to say, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, right? I don't think any of us in here have murdered anyone, this, right? At least probably not that you're going to admit, uh, right? We've not murdered anyone, but Jesus is going to say, okay, so you haven't murdered anyone, but let me get to the heart of the matter. 
But do you have, have you ever had anger toward another person? So the, what Jesus is doing in these verses is he's giving us examples to help show us that, yes, maybe we've stopped ourselves short of murdering someone, right? Maybe the blood isn't on our hands, but maybe the blood is on our hearts. That the desire, the hatred, the anger is there. And so in these verses, Jesus, over the next several weeks, we're going to see Jesus gives us six different examples to help show us how, how we, we can't surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes on our own. He's going to show us how we need Jesus to change our heart's desires and the format by which Jesus is going to open up our hearts and expose our sinful desires is by declaring the external deed or the standard. And, and just follow along with me quickly. There, look there in your Bibles. You'll see in verse 21 where Jesus begins. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That's one of the first examples or illustrations that Jesus is going to use. Then you jump to verse 27. And this is the next example or illustration Jesus is going to use where he'll say, you have heard that it was said. Then we go to verse 31 where Jesus again says, it has been said. We look at verse 33 and again, Jesus says, again, you heard that it was said to the people long ago. You look at verse 38 and what do you see again? You have heard that it was said eye for an eye. And then finally, in verse 43, you see Jesus repeat this phrase. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? So what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus is saying, this is the external action right? That, that has been said long ago that you're very familiar with. This is the external deed that many people have said, okay, I've been able to stop myself short from committing murder. What Jesus does is he says, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder. And then Jesus says, but I say. Jesus is not abolishing that Old Testament law. He's not getting rid of it. He's not downplaying that. What he's doing is, is he's, he's now getting past the external and he's diving deep into our hearts. So he, Jesus is a great pastor, right? He's the best preacher that ever lived, isn't he? And so all he's doing is he's taking verse 20 where it says you need a, a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes and he's, he's showing us in these six different ways, these six, six different illustrations, how our hearts are unable to earn our way to heaven because we all have sinful desires and that's why Paul says by faith in Jesus Christ you can have the righteousness that is required. So this morning, we're looking here at this first illustration that Jesus is using. And again, Jesus takes us there and he points our attention to murder. Look there again at verse 21. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to to judgment. Again, the command for external obedience 
taken from the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments is clear. Do not murder another person. According to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if they didn't have blood on their hands, then they were maintaining righteousness and were indeed living in obedience to the sixth commandment. Jesus is revealing to us the deeper heart issue. He helps us to see that it is indeed possible to obey and get the external command right, but yet completely miss the character. We see how a life of good deeds can still be soured by a secret life of harboring sinful desires. So the invitation of of Jesus to follow him is not only to live externally a certain way, but the invitation where Jesus is saying, come and follow me, Jesus is saying, come and follow me and, and be completely changed from the inside out to allow Christ's righteousness to be our righteousness. And so the progression of Jesus' example that he is presenting here in these verses shows us Right? It highlights the value of reconciliation in our relationships. Again, so it would be like this. If you ask someone, you know, what makes a good friend? I think most of us would, would probably say, well, a good friend, right, is kind and is generous, is caring, looks out for the needs of other people. In a sense, the, the standard for being a good friend for the Pharisees and the scribes essentially is, well, I've not killed you yet. So, so, so we're, we're friends, right? I've not, we're, we're still alive. We're, 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 we're able to be friends. That, that essentially is their standard. But Jesus, he's, he's going to take it right to the heart. We know that as a follower of Jesus, as a member of his kingdom, we are to conduct ourselves differently. We're to conduct ourselves at a higher standard of living, a higher standard of righteousness. We are to live in, a, in such a way that is only made possible through Jesus Christ. We are not to simply just avoid murdering or taking the life of another person whom we disagree with, right? We don't have the attitude, well, you better hold me back, tie my hands back before I start swinging at this person. But instead, what Jesus says, don't just be satisfied with the fact that you've not murdered that person you're angry with. What does he say? We're going to get to the point to the end where Jesus says, your responsibility as one who follows me is to pursue reconciliation with that person. The truth of the matter is that this morning's sermon, as will most of these sermons probably, uh, they, it will probably hit closer to home than any of us would like to admit. A lot of us, we have grown accustomed to living at odds with other people. Some of our hearts have just grown callous to fractured relationships. Bitterness, unforgiveness, hurt, ongoing frustration, anger, careless words being spoken about other people, disgruntled thoughts, all of this are all accepted in many of our lives, as just being kind of the nasty underbelly of a relationship that's gone wrong. Sadly, we've allowed ourselves to normalize what is nothing more than a wasteland of broken relationships. 
And these broken relationships are in our workplaces. They are in our cul-de-sacs with our neighbors. They are even in church sanctuaries like this. These broken relationships present themselves in our family trees and even around our dinner tables. And what we've done is we have become satisfied with the standard. Well, at least I haven't murdered them yet. That's, that's it. I, I've, not, I've not taken their life. And what do we do? We continue with our lives without giving that broken relationship a second chance or a third chance or a tenth or fifteenth chance. And following Jesus and living as members of His kingdom, the greater righteousness goes, just, goes, goes far beyond just being held back from violence. But instead, Christ's righteousness is going to lead us to restore, restoration in that relationship. And so Jesus then continues in verse 22, right? Again, the external is presented there, there for us. Thou shalt not murder. And now Jesus in verse 22 is going to start aiming for the heart. And here's what he's going to say. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The desires of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, the motives of our actions are being exposed here. Jesus is shining his light into those corners of our hearts that we prefer to keep in the dark. This verse points to our fundamental problem of anger toward other people. Jesus by his authority, insists that those of us who are spiteful, who are contemptuous, who are bitter, those of us who are insulting toward others, the desires of that heart reveals a sinful heart in need of Christ's righteousness. And what he is saying is that because we have those desires, we are sinners in need of Jesus. And without Jesus, what he says is that you will be in, the, in, in danger of the fire of hell. He is saying there's judgment for those who've not received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yes, you maybe you've not murdered, but there's anger in your heart. So Jesus is helping us to see that anger is a fundamental problem in all of our hearts. That in one way or another, so many of us struggle with anger toward others. I wonder, have you ever wished that something bad would happen to another person? Now, I, I understand not out loud, but in your heart. Right, have you ever insulted someone to their face or behind their back? That's what Jesus is saying, that raka. It's, that, it's, it's like calling someone a knucklehead, a fool, an idiot. Have you ever done that? To them, maybe to their face or behind their back? Do you ever bring up past sins and hurts that another person has caused you? And doing it in a hurtful, undermining, undercutting way. Do you, do you ever find yourself doing that or wanting to do that? Anger is in our hearts because 
I wonder, do you ever avoid places or situations because there's a chance that you might see the other person there? Students, maybe in in the classroom hallways. Maybe there's someone that you've been angry toward and so you know that their locker is over here and so you take the long way to the cafeteria. Have you ever posted to social media a cryptic update with certain individuals in mind? Someone just confessed their sin. (laughs) We've all seen that, right? Marin will come up and be like, wow, I wonder who that's supposed to be for. But we do that. We laugh at it, but it's true, isn't it? Have you ever allowed disdain to simmer in your heart toward another person? Do you find satisfaction in sharing and listening to gossip? Do you ever find yourself resorting to name-calling? All of this is exposing the deep, the deep issues of our hearts. Regarding the anger that we harbor toward others, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he, he said these words. He said that every idle word which we think so little of, what does it do? It betrays our lack of respect for our neighbor. And it shows that we place ourselves on a pinnacle above him and we value our lives higher than his life. The angry word is a blow struck at our brother. It's a stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and destroy. It's a deliberate insult. A deliberate insult is even worse for we are then openly disagreeing, disgracing our brother in the eyes of the world. We're causing others to despise him. With our hearts burning with hatred, we seek to annihilate his moral and material existence. Oh, I've not murdered him. I'm good. I've not taken, there's no blood on my hands. But the anger is in our hearts. And Jesus says, you need a greater righteousness. Because of the anger in your hearts. First John 3.15, we are told, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. We're reminded how much we need Jesus to help us. We're reminded that Jesus really is our only hope. That only he is the one who is able to fulfill all righteousness. And when we acknowledge the true condition of our heart, we find ourselves running to Jesus for his grace. And this then is what Jesus instructs us. Jesus then gives us this instruction. Again, that, right? there's no one who would have been standing around listening to Jesus who, who would have been able to say that, that they've not had those angry feelings in their hearts that he describes for us in verses 21 and 20, 22. So then Jesus, notice that word there in verse 23. Jesus gives us this word, therefore. All right? He's, he's, tie, he's giving us instruction, right? If you have anger in your heart toward another person, here's the duty, here's the responsibility of someone who follows Jesus, and that's now to, to turn and to pursue reconciliation because that's what we do as members of, of Christ's kingdom. We are peacemakers, we learned there in the Beatitudes. So in verses 23 and 26, we learn that reconciliation is a movement of the heart away from anger toward love and peace. Jesus, the instructions are these, therefore, all right? You have the desire of anger, therefore. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, 
And there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. The instruction continues then in verse 25. Settle matters quickly. Okay, he's giving another illustration of this illustration of our, of our hearts. Verse 25 then, he says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We see that the way of the kingdom is reconciliation, is pursuing reconciliation in our, in our broken relationships. One of the marks of a follower of Jesus is that we seek to live at peace with others. Paul tells us that as much as it depends on you, pursue reconciliation. We are hard at pursuing reconciliation. And Jesus is so concerned that we not harbor anger in our hearts by by giving us these two commands. And let me summarize these two commands in this way. The first one is this, is to go and be reconciled, all right? That's verses 23 and 24. To summarize that instruction, Jesus says, go and be reconciled. Go and do it. And then in verses 25 and 26, to summarize that instruction, Jesus is saying, and do it now. Do it immediately. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus is giving us the instruction to go and be reconciled, and he he emphasizes the importance of reconciliation by comparing it to the importance of our worship. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers before we offer up our worship and offering to the Lord. In other words, what we are before God involves how we are related to other people. An unwillingness to address our broken relationships with others is evidence of a hardened heart toward God our worship becomes nothing more than a sideshow if we are not willing to go and pursue reconciliation with someone we have offended, hurt, wronged, or even at this very time are living at odds with. Jesus is helping us to see that we cannot separate our relationships with other people from our worship to God. It's impossible for us to honor God if at the same time we are dishonoring those who are made in His image. Our worship is in vain and we should go and be reconciled. And so Jesus then goes on in verses 25 and 26 and He says, go do it now while you have the opportunity. He says, go and do it while you still are able. Regarding these verses, John Piper, I think, provides us some helpful observations because John Piper helps us to understand that we are only responsible for what others hold against us when it involves real sin or blundering on our part. If, If we have truly sinned against another person, we are responsible 
for that. And we should, we should seek reconciliation. Now, we're not responsible if they don't like us because we cheer for the wrong sports team. I'm, like, if someone doesn't like me because I cheer for the Louisville Cardinals and you cheer for the UK Wildcats, and yes, that divide can sometimes be that extreme. If someone doesn't like me because of that, well, that's not a real sin, and so I don't need to necessarily ask them to forgive me for liking the Cardinals. But if I've stolen from them their UK basketball tickets then I should, that is a real sin, and I should pursue that reconciliation from them or pursue that reconciliation with them. But so what, what, what we have to understand is that we are, we are responsible for, for the sin that we've committed against them, but we also understand that Jesus tells us that, yes, we are responsible to pursue reconciliation, but we can't force their hearts to want to reconcile with us. We can't force that. We ultimately are not the ones who are responsible for making reconciliation happen on their end. But Jesus does give us clear instructions that it would be better for this sanctuary to be empty on a Sunday morning knowing that we were pursuing reconciliation with someone we've hurt, someone that we've sinned against. It would be better for this sanctuary to be empty because we are about the business of making peace with other people. It would be better if the sanctuary was empty than if we had a full house, a full band, and the worship sounded better than it's ever sounded before. Because God would say, I'm not, that, that doesn't please me. We have to also remind ourselves that just knowing the right thing to do does not resolve the conflict. Action is now required. We must quickly do all that we can do to pursue reconciliation. And most of us understand that the longer we wait, we wait to make re- reconciliation, the more difficult the reconciliation becomes. Personal conflicts are a whole lot easier to resolve the sooner they are dealt with. That's what Jesus is telling us. He is saying, go and deal with the conflict now as soon as you can. Don't put it off because the longer you put it off, the higher debt you'll owe. The more difficult it will be. The longer you put off reconciliation, the bigger the price tag. Emotionally, physically, relationally, financially at times, and yes, even spiritually. So again, Jesus tells us this. Okay, so maybe you've not murdered the person. But in your heart, there are desires of anger against them. The way of following Jesus is now to pursue reconciliation. And so I ask you a few questions. Are you responsible for causing someone to be mad at you? Is there a conversation that you've been avoiding? Have you knowingly said things that have caused pain to another person? 
Has your pride stopped you from apologizing? I wonder, could it be that the spiritual drought in your heart is because of an unwillingness to pursue reconciliation with another person? Have you taken complete responsibility for the role that you've played in a broken relationship? See, the way of the kingdom is obedience to these commands. The way of Jesus is an adherence to God's character. It's a willingness to receive Jesus' righteousness and and to put that into practice. Jesus does not place this instruction. Do not mishear this sermon or these words. Jesus does not place this instruction before us to serve as a burden or a weight of condemnation. Jesus places this before us because he loves us. Jesus places this instruction before us because he invites us into the life that he has for us. And if we really believe, if we really believe in the words of Jesus and, his, and that his promises are true, then we will obey him by allowing him to change our hearts and to pursue reconciliation. So who is it you need to pursue reconciliation with? Is it a brother or a sister? Is it a son or a daughter? Is it an ex-husband, an ex-wife. Maybe it's a husband or a wife you're currently married to. Jesus invites us into the greater righteousness, the greater way. He says, check your heart. There's anger there. And allow me to help you with reconciliation. This morning, church, I have over on this uh, stand several books. Uh, that they're, It's all the same book, but I have several copies of a book titled Resolving Everyday Conflict. I got five copies of it. And I... I kind of think, wish maybe I had gotten more because there's probably more than just five of us in here who have this struggle. I kind of wish I had just gotten a copy for all of us. So uh, when the five copies are gone, I'll leave a piece of paper up here. And if you are interested in a copy of it, let the church help you. Let us help help you in this reconciliation by buying this book for you and we'll have it here for you next week. Now, if you are the sixth person to come up here and you don't get the fifth copy, please don't fight over it. That just wouldn't be good that we're fighting over a book about resolving everyday conflict. But I would understand if you would do that before reading the book. That would be understandable. I'd be like, okay, we'll get you several copies of it. 
But we believe it's, it's that important, church. It's that important. And so I want to encourage, and, and believe me, we're not going to be like, oh, oh, oh whoa, so-and-so is getting a book. They must have some conflict in their life. I'm glad we knew it. I'm glad they're finally realizing it. We're a church family, right? We understand this. Jesus is speaking about this because Jesus knows the tendency of our hearts better than we even know them. And he's inviting us to reconcile. It seems as if we are probably no... That the moment of time in which... Everyone says, I want to be like Jesus. Well, if you want to be like Jesus, one of, the, one of the best ways for you to be like Jesus is to be a person who reconciles. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Let me take you back to the movie, The Straight Story. The movie concludes with Alvin, who's driving his John Deere lawn tractor. He's driven it 240 miles And the movie concludes with Alvin finally making it to his brother's house. It's an old, dilapidated house with a tattered old man living in it. It seems that the condition of the house and the the man's body are a reflection of the estranged, estranged brother's heart. And the closing scene has the two brothers sitting on the front porch. And they're sitting there, and Alvin has just arrived, and Lyle has just stepped out of the house, and the closing scene has them sitting there in silence until finally Lyle speaks up, and he asks his brother, Alvin, he says, Alvin, did you really ride that thing all the way out here to see me? And Alvin simply says, I did. I did. And so, church, I ask you again, how far will you go to reconcile a broken relationship?